This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. April Fool's Day is approaching, and ironically, that is also the date back in 2018 when the ELD mandate took effect. Worst April Fool's joke ever. But even worse, legislation born of good intentions is running into a brick brawl of reality, where drivers are in a race against time and the supply chain to elk out a living. Did the ELD mandate cause more harm than good? Can I become a real journalist? We're going to find out and more on this episode of Loaded and Rolling. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Wasson. And trucking, the holy trinity, is uh, the 11 hours drive time, 14 hours on duty, and 70 hours a week. For most of their experience on the road, each day and week is influenced by this time. There are some ways to extend it, bargain with it, but not reason with it, as these original rules have been unfortunately around since 1938. To find out what this means for drivers on the road and the industry as a whole, we're going to welcome our next guest. She writes for the newsletter Modes and has reported on the logistics industry and featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Vox, and other digital imprint media. You may have also seen her work on ABC News, NBC News, NPR, and other major outlets. Very happy to welcome Freightway's very own Rachel Premack. Hey, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you on. I saw your article uh, talking about the ELD mandate, and that's always one of the very soft spots of mine because I've been yelled about the fact that we can't get much more time. Tell us a little bit about what helped, uh, you know, help you decide to write about it and what were some of the influences for it? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, Freight Waves as a whole, we have a big series this week on the ELD mandate. April 1st, 2018, as you mentioned, was the date when uh, the EOD mandate finally began enforcement. Uh, so it, 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 was, it was just sort of more of an editorial newsroom choice to, to write about the mandate for this week. But I was, I'm really interested in this topic because it's what interests drivers, so it interests me. But it's funny because my second ever story I wrote on the trucking industry back when I started in 2018 was on the ELD mandate. And it was the response to that story that really convinced me to just make reporting on trucking my full-time job because before that I was kind of covering a few different industries. Um, so yeah, ELD mandate is very near and dear to my heart in a in a positive and negative way. <laughs> That's what I was curious about as well. I remember uh, I worked for a large care, so this has always been around. ELDs were something we had to deal with, but I remember when the mandate went into effect, I thought, why are all these other people angry? Oh, they have to use it. And the old crusty drivers, they used to joke to me, they said, well, I had my three good logbooks. I had the one that actually had my hours that nobody saw. I had the one the company saw, and I had one that the officer who pulled me over saw. And that was like most of the experience until 2018. So when, when was it that these large characters, not to, not to interview you on your own <laughs> show, but I'm curious, when was it that uh, 
large carriers started having drivers use these ELDs because obviously with multiple technology connection, it, it would have taken a little bit of time before, uh, you know, this kind of became this big interconnected network. But yeah, like when did that start for large carriers? I like to around think what time? 2005. So when I was at US Express, uh, we they were one of the very first large carriers to use the driver tech platform, the onboard ELD, oh, and they pioneered them uh, and other large ones started using that. And what was fascinating was, was that they almost had this head start because from a large carrier standpoint, you know, people have been talking about the rulemaking since the early 2000s, but nothing really had happened until much later. So they thought, well, if we do this now, we're already going to be compliant. And uh, then yeah. we're also going to be able to be in a situation where we can actually use telematics and make our own homebrew TMS. But what was fascinating was in the studies, I remember you mentioned a study and I, I'd reported on one out of Arkansas talking about the impacts of the ELD rule. They used the large carrier's ELD data as the constant and then compared the small carriers because it did go back uh, I'm, I'm going to just say 2005. Someone's going to probably call and say 2003 or whatever, but since this isn't a radio show, we're very lucky. No honor fact checking like my serious XM duties. <laughs> I, okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it, is, it was really interesting comparing uh, the fact that they could compare how the ELD affected uh, owner operators and small fleet and just really be able to say, to compare that to the large fleet that had been using ELDs for however long. The other interesting thing about that um, is that I imagine the LDs will just simply affect small drivers or, or the, the the environment that that makes the job of trucking difficult. I think it would affect, in many cases, owner-operators or small truck drivers more so than someone who works for a mega fleet because, you know, something I learned in the, these interviews for this story as well as previous interviews is that if you're a large carrier and the same shipper keeps, you know, screwing over your drivers over and over and over again, at a certain point, you can say, okay, I'm not working with you anymore. Whereas if you're a small carrier, especially in the current, you know, spot rate environment, you have to stick around. You don't, you can't just say, okay, I'm not working with you anymore because then you might not have any customers left. But uh, for the, for the really met, for the really large and especially those large and prestigious carriers, um, I I can imagine that the tension time is probably not as big of an issue because they can negotiate a little bit more closely with their shippers. Oh yeah, and it's it's really cool because uh, we talked about that early adoption of ELDs. Geofencing was also a similar thing. So what would happen is. Uh, even when I was a broker, I finally saw it because you're so separated a large carrier. You don't really care. You know, detention happens. You notify someone and it just gets passed along to another department than another department. But uh, it, I think it was Werner. I had a load on Werner as a broker. And they would send automated emails saying, driver's been at Geofence for two hours. Detention's about to occur. Drivers. And it was all automated. And, and if you looked at Werner's yeah. earlier stuff before their uh, CIO got a hold of it and re revamped their website. It was still this old school website from like, you know, back in the day, you can check it out. But yeah, large carriers, it's all automated. It was never an issue because like when you reported on the impacts of the ELDs, that's what I found so fascinating. Large carriers preload drop and hook, 45 minutes tops. Most of your effort was looking for trailers if you couldn't find one. 
So you would be in and out, and very mm-hmm. rarely would you deal with like the wait time of a live load. But for these owner ops that you interviewed, I thought that was so fascinating because it really highlighted what they were going through when you wrote about the day of the, you know the life. They were stuck for five hours. Now they're running behind. Now they have to make this appointment. Now they're gonna you know that. I don't think a lot of people see that reality and just how it sticks with you throughout the whole week, and you're just stuck. You can't really work with it when your time runs out. Right. And if, if you miss, if one thing goes wrong, I mean, it requires this huge uh, sort of like padding of time because on the the Wednesday that the Schmitz were driving from Minnesota to Iowa, that's just a six hour drive. Um, Max, that's a six hour drive. Uh, even So even though they have that 14 hour time window, they like they, they needed all that time just to drive six hours because of all of the interruptions that can happen you know you're waiting to be to be loaded then you're looking to find parking then there's a mechanical issue and this and the other thing um so i think yeah i I think the schmidt story really highlighted that and it's interesting because this isn't like this is just what they were dealing with when i called them it wasn't this isn't like a exceptional circumstance it's just every day you're minding the clock you're you're trying to make sure you're worrying that something's not gonna but everything's going to go okay. Uh, it's just kind of this constant pressure. And I I can imagine, even though it doesn't sound that big a deal, it's like, well, you know, get there, it'll work out. Um, it doesn't always work out. And I can imagine if that is just weighing on you every day, it makes the job really challenging, especially when you're, when you never had to deal with that before. It's super hard. Even dispatching. When I I never experienced that suffering until I joined my last startup, where that one story encapsulated so many Monday mornings. Oh, we're down by five hours. Now I'm five hours behind, and you can tell their entire week when you're thinking of, well, what can I put them on next? Because as soon as they're on one, your next job yeah. is I gotta find another thing to haul because that's how I make money. Now I was like, oh, oh crap, I'm not getting unloaded in the morning. I'm unloaded in the afternoon. Oh no, places close at 5 p.m. Yeah. Oh, what do I do? How long the load do I get? And it messes up every, and then the driver is mad, and then I hear about it, and they yell at me. So it's very therapeutic for me to read your article yeah. and understand like <laughs> just how much they get boned over. It's the only industry, I think what you've done a great job reporting is uh, where people are incentivized and encouraged to work 70 hours a week or more. Yeah, and it's 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 crazy because I think there is also a study from uh, David Carell at MIT, uh, and he found that the typical driver—I forget the exact circumstances—but the typical driver only works or drives six hours a day, which is coincidentally what the Schmitz were dealing with at my piece. Just six hours of driving in that fourteen-hour window, but it's 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 like the job is barely about money at this point. The job is everything else. It's it you know checking of course you should make sure your equipment is, is is solid but you know it's it's looking for parking it's waiting for detention it's it's chasing down brokers who didn't pay your detention time it's this that and the other thing so um yeah it's just really fascinating how one small thing can go wrong and it just screws over your whole week because exactly what you said you're you're expecting to get unloaded in the morning and that you get unloaded in the afternoon then uh who's gonna who's gonna load you you know at eight o'clock that night it's not this isn't actually it works yeah. generally um yeah so it's 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 just it i i, I do feel for the drivers because it's like this would be really annoying to have to deal with and it seems like it's not really making anyone's job 
better. But the other issue is that it's kind of hard to argue with, it's kind of hard to argue the point that, yeah, people should be working 14 hours a day. They should be working more than 14 hours a day. That's where the kind of this, this comes, this becomes difficult because we want to make the driver's lives easier. But the way to do that is to expand their workday even more. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's why it's such a bizarre topic to cover the, the, the whole ELD hours of service conversation. It, two things that stood out to me as well because of that limited hours. One, the turnover rate. I didn't know it was Chipotle was also a high turnover one. So your drivers who have to go through a school spend three to $4,000 for schooling. Uh, they have the same turnover rate as someone who just starts work and decides to work at Chipotle. That one really blew my mind yeah. in terms of for people outside the industry, just putting this into perspective of like, this job is rough. And also the people who are working it, they don't often stick around. So you're constantly churning through them. Exactly. And it was, I'm sure Chipotle, I, I haven't confirmed this. I'm sure Chipotle also has a pretty high turnover rate, but it was Panera. And Panera, Panera actually dang, had one of the lowest. Yeah, yeah I, they're, they're both great, great establishments. But um, yeah, Panera's turnover rate is about... 90 to 100 percent which is the same turnover rate that or for large fleets it's around 90 to 93 percent i forget the exact numbers but yeah i mean it and and the other thing is that if you have a bad panera employee or a poorly trained panera employee or a panera that's only staffed by people who just started working there a week ago you know Maybe your sandwich will get screwed up, but there's not really like a safety element to this. Whereas if you only have truck drivers who have, you know, a few months of experience under their belt on the road, that endangers, that endangers just the entire public, everyone who uses the highways. I remember, I was thinking Chipotle. I was talking to the TV crew earlier about Chipotle. That was why. I should have looked at my notes. But looking, okay. looking at that impact of younger drivers as well, you're racing against the clock. Studies have shown that instead of making the roads safer, it actually encouraged reckless driving behavior, higher incidents of speeding. Uh, drivers, when interviewed, said they're running out of time. Uh, what, from your experience talking with people in the industry, even in media, what's kind of the general vibe here? What, is, you know, what do you even start trying to digest this thing, given that the implications are... That the one thing that we decided at the 10 years in the making to implement is actually potentially worse for the industry. Yeah, it's interesting because I spoke to several FM, former FMCSA uh, officials, including uh, the second ever FMCSA administrator. Um, she served uh, during the early to mid-2000s. And there's this kind of understanding, well, for... First of all, one thing that I think is important and not often discussed is that this it wasn't FMCSA's decision to push for this mandate. This was something that was congressionally decided in a 2012 uh, package of transportation laws. So it, it wasn't something that the FMCSA you know, woke up one day and said, we got to have this mandate. It's, it's something that was uh, you know, established by Congress. But when I spoke to these former FMCSA officials, they agree. They know that the issue isn't so much that, uh, you know, drivers need to be working more. They, they agree with, you know, the what I think most people would say, which is that drivers should work less. And the way to have drivers work less is to pay them fairly. Annette Sandberg, the uh, FMCSA administrator I spoke to, she even said that 
the bigger issue here is that drivers aren't paid for every hour that they work. They're only paid per mile. And as soon as we started paying truck drivers, even minimum wage for their their total active time, uh, we would probably see detention as an issue just suddenly go away because suddenly a driver's time isn't free commodity for, you know, the entire retail, agricultural, and industrial industries. Well, that's what I was curious about. Now, when I was researching it a little bit uh, for, for a newsletter back in the day, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and you mentioned this in your article, does not apply to drivers. So you can work those 14 hours a day. You can work 70 hours a week. But unlike your person who can work 40 and then get overtime, they don't get any kind of time. They're exempt, and this has been yeah. around since thir- 1938. And you think that's something that folks are going to start paying more attention to now that we're seeing, you know, with uh, in California, AB5, we're seeing Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals asking about owner-operators. Are people going to start targeting the fact that these folks are basically skirting by and not getting paid and their their sitting time is costing them and not even the company? Yeah, yeah. So lawmakers have been introducing bills. There was a congressman from Michigan, actually, who introduced a bill to address this. Um, he, unfortunately, is... Uh, there is redistricting. He's no longer uh, the represent this uh, representative from Michigan, but a different senator actually introduced a bill to address uh, truck drivers not receiving this overtime pay. It's something that is known, and I think it's it's interesting to see, and I think it's positive for the driver community that these bills are being introduced. It's not really something that I think is, you know, stirring up the nation. I think that if, like, the people who are, you know, people are paying close attention to what's going on with rail workers, but um, truck drivers, for whatever reason, haven't, aren't currently capturing the the nation's uh, progressives and conservatives and and others who are, who get interested in these labor issues. Um, But I I, I do think that kind of looking at that law is interesting, because the reason that truck drivers were carved out from the law in the first place is that there is a different, uh, there were different kind of laws that would account for how drivers were paid. And also during this time, driving was a heavily unionized uh, job. So there, there wasn't really that much concern over, oh, how will the drivers get paid if we don't lump this, lump them in with, with overtime pay? It would almost be like, you know, nowadays, if someone passed some sort of labor law and, excluded, I don't know, let's say investment bankers. No one would be concerned about including yeah. the investment bankers. That, that's practically how truck drivers in some cases were viewed then. They were incredibly well compensated and protected by the Teamsters Union. Um, so it wasn't a priority for uh, lawmakers to make sure they were included in, in the, in the um, overtime bill. That's the missing piece I was thinking about is why would they include it? Because they had the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, which regulated the yeah. lanes, regulated motor carrier numbers, and it basically made it to where instead of us haggling over track, we wouldn't be looking up track rates. We would look over what is the lane that is mandated? Like, how much does this lane cost? Because you have the right to the lane. And we'd be yeah. looking up the rights to the lane and you'd sell the rights and then you became the carrier because you bought it from another carrier. And uh, by the way, if you ever want to look that up, there's two different types of chicken based on ICC rules, and one type of chicken could get around it, and so these carriers would bid on these lanes and based on the difference of a chicken. I have read this chicken study as well. I I guess we're reading the same, <laughs> same niche like studies on this law from 
1935. It's like freshly dressed versus not dressed. I don't know what the difference is. If they like carved it in a certain way, I, I don't know like the poultry terminology. But yeah, it was like there. Agricultural goods were generally not regulated under the pre-1980 bill uh, regulation. But then there is some random agricultural goods that could get around it. Um, so I'm sure it was preferable to... So I'm sure it was preferable to not carry the regulated goods because those would probably be lower rates. But yeah, I, I, we, should, we should dive more into that. The hidden chicken conspiracy. I want to talk about media stuff as well, reporting it. And you've come from what some would say legacy media, now we're a form of business media. Uh, one thing I think was fascinating, we talked about how no one pays as much attention to truck drivers, Prop 22 and AB5. AB5 was designed to target DoorDash, Lyft, and Uber drivers as a form of contract and address it. Well, they had enough attention that they could get Proposition 22 passed in California, which exempted them from AB5, and unfortunately, then the legacy contractors at motor carriers are now left holding the bag because I guess there wasn't enough attention. Is that something that you see as well? Or are more folks paying attention now to supply chain media uh, in terms of getting more, you know, uh, attention? Yeah, no, it's something that has confused me as well since I started reporting on this in 2018. So I think when I started reporting on trucking and logistics more generally in 2018, People were interested in, if, well, first of all, they were usually confused, but they're also interested in talking to me about driverless trucks, as well as kind of the Trump, USPS, Amazon um, fighting going on. They're, people were interested in that. Fast forward five or six years, people are, I would say there is more of an interest in trucking. There's more of an understanding that this industry exists. I think I would get a lot of questions pre-COVID that were more along the lines of, oh, what companies use truckers? And it's like, every, every company, yeah. <laughs> every single, like, I, I, I think there's this understanding or belief among the general public pre-COVID that everything moved on trains and, like, trucks were just there to, like, cause traffic on the highways and, like, block your parking spot or bike lanes or whatever, I think there's more of an understanding that, oh, trucking is actually a thing that is important and exists, which is such a low bar. But that was the bar, I think, that we've now crossed, that people know that trucking is really, really big and we need it to have a society, essentially. Um, that was certainly the confusion before. So things have improved, I think, in, like, the mainstream media. You know, the New York Times has a logistics correspondent. They didn't have one before. That's one That's one example that comes to mind. But I wouldn't say that there's a... Suddenly, people... Suddenly, these, like, large mainstream outlets are, are taking it as seriously as I think. Biasedly, of course. But as I think, they should be taking it seriously. Well, it feels like they approach it from a business standpoint. Wall Street Journal Logistics Report, you know... Uh, Mr. Berger and uh, Liz Page and them, as well as Bloomberg, when they approach it, every once in a while, I'll, I'm a subscriber, so full transparency, uh, we have logins, but you'll see every once in a while a story about freight, but it's normally about how's this company being impacted? What's the other angle? And I feel like mm -hmm. very few publications other than legacy niches, you've got your landlines and your other groups and us, Freight Waves now, uh, have really taken up the beat. Do you think that given the fact that trucking is one of the largest 
uh, employers in many states right behind places like Walmart. Do you think there's kind of an untapped potential for media to expand and potentially look for avenues of growth, given that the legacy media itself is being, uh, you know, cannibalized by other mediums, mediums like TikTok and video? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I have been confused since I started reporting on trucking why there aren't a million other mainstream reporters covering trucking. As you mentioned, it's a huge employer. Two million people world, or two million people nationwide are actively working in long haul trucking. That's a huge. Re- if, if you're obsessed with traffic and getting readers and getting clicks and you know so on and so forth, like that, that's it. Two million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And then you know there's houses that they're. Um, children, family members, people who also work in logistics, but maybe not directly you know, driving a truck. Um, I certainly find it confusing that we see these outlets, you know, invest in basically any other form of coverage. That's Cost crypto, crypto, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't understand why so we outlets have like 10 crypto reporters and not a single person covering logistics. And to be fair, Places like the Journal and Bloomberg do a really good job covering logistics, but that's because it's their their business publications. What I'm confused by is why publications like the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR, places that do really kind of connect with an everyday American, I they don't have more trucking coverage. Until then, I guess I'm fine with it. I guess less competition for me, but um, I think it's confusing personally. Well, speaking of trying competition and helping the cause, you have a newsletter called Modes. Tell us a little bit about it and what's the best way to sign up for it? Yeah, so I started the Modes newsletter in 2019. It was very much just focused on trucking. Now it's kind of all over the place, uh, but still pretty much focused around logistics and, uh, you know, how consumer demand could be driving freight. Um, So yeah, I started the newsletter in 2019. And as of last week, we now have a Modes show and podcast which is really exciting you can catch that 2 p.m on thursdays on freightwaves tv or wherever you typically listen to your podcast uh so yeah it's super exciting and i think we'll be my my goal for all of my newsletters and all of my podcast and tv episodes is that people who are who spent decades in the industry find it interesting and people who don't care all about logistics, find it interesting, and that everyone can kind of take something away from it. I'm looking forward to reading the next one, and I'm happy to help out with the ICC chicken debate as well. Yeah, Keep an eye on that. (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure getting to talk to you as well and, uh, you know, get a good perspective. Uh, You learn something new every day in this industry, and we're really appreciative for people like you reporting on it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's going to be a wrap for today, though. But those of you listening to the podcast or watching this, you can also subscribe to the Loaded and Rolling newsletter at freightwaves.com slash loaded and rolling. And we have this show as well. We're going to be back on next week as well, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. You may also catch me sometimes on SiriusXM. I get around. So that has been a wrap for today. Been an excellent time getting to chat with Rachel, learning a little bit more about the ELD mandate and media as well. And thank you all for watching and listening. I'm Thomas Wasson. Catch us next time because we're going to do it live.